Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, who ha- which have no understanding, but must be controlled by the bitten bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all who you are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, There's been this habit, or a study, I should say, um, done a few years ago by a local university about the growing trend of people to self-diagnose their medical ailments. Um, they, it, it's, it's, it's a syndrome called Google Doctor. You might have heard about it. This study was about how people try to self-diagnose, and when they do, they put too much emphasis on the symptoms rather than the likelihood of them having that disease. As a result, they turn up to hospitals complaining about uh, various illnesses which are quite different to their actual condition. Uh, A similar study was done in the US that said uh, almost three quarters of respondents tried to self-diagnose before they went to a doctor, with a large proportion of those diagnoses being wrong. Uh, Needless to say, if you're going to have an accurate prescription, you need to have a thorough diagnosis. Now, that makes sense in the medical world, but it's also true of our spiritual condition. If we're going to have a healthy spiritual life, you need to have listened to the right diagnosis of your spiritual condition. As he, you said earlier, the aim of uh, the talks over this weekend is to look at spiritual disciplines, the habits of a healthy Christian life. Uh, Habits and practices like prayer and Bible reading, uh, spiritual community and singing. And one of those basic spiritual competencies is confession. Uh, Confession is that basic competency of admitting your guilt. You know you've done something wrong, you've made a mistake, something is your fault, and you admit that. Um, We often call it repentance. Confession and repentance can be used as terms interchangeably. Uh, Confession can happen corporately. Often we do it uh, with one another in the midst of a service, a church service. Uh, Confession can happen privately. In the quietness of your own heart, in prayer, you come before God with your guilt. It can happen with somebody else, someone you know, someone who you trust perhaps, uh, ideally another Christian. Uh, 
you can confess to someone else. Hopefully, hopefully, we, we can use confession in all three of those contexts. Now, the Psalms are a wonderful prescription by God of our spiritual health. Uh, they're quoted, the Psalms are quoted more uh, by the New Testament than any other book in the Old Testament. Augustine, one of the famous church leaders early on in the 4th century, wanted this psalm, Psalm 32, which we just read, to be written next to his sickbed because he said the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself as a sinner. Uh, This psalm diagnoses you to be a sinner and gives you the only effective cure for that sin. Uh, The key to spiritual health is not just knowing that you have a problem, but knowing how that problem can be cured. So as we're going to have a look at Psalm 32 uh, this morning, uh, we're going to look at this spiritual discipline of confession. We're going to see two things. First of all, uh, we're going to see what this psalm says about the priority of confession, and then secondly, about the path of confession. This psalm is written by King David, um, and it's hard to go past those first two verses that we see, uh, those first two verses, because of that word that appears twice. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. That word blessed in Hebrew is a lot stronger than the word that we get in English. Uh, In English, it comes across as kind of being happy and in control of your circumstances. That's what blessedness means. But in Hebrew, it goes much deeper. It's much more profound. It's not just about finding happiness. It's about having peace, total fulfillment, complete well-being. And notice how David says that you get that. How do you get it? Well, he says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. The blessed life comes from being forgiven. Now, I remember about 10 years ago before I I moved to Hong Kong, I I, uh, I, I met a guy uh, who I used to go to church with quite a lot. And he'd stopped going to church, but we caught up with each other. It'd been a few years since I'd seen him. And we talked about what we're up to in life and... Eventually, the conversation steered around to church and and why he stopped coming. And he said one of the reasons why he stopped going to church was basically about his needs. He didn't think church or Christianity was meeting any particular one of his needs. I I pushed him a little bit further and he said uh, he has all sorts of needs in life, relational, emotional, physical needs, but being forgiven wasn't one of them. Uh, He still believed in God, but he just didn't think he had that much to be forgiven. Uh, The way he was living was fine. Guilt was an antiquated and old-fashioned concept. There are all sorts of priorities in life, but forgiveness wasn't one of them. Now, to be honest, I don't think he's alone in that thinking. Uh, Many people think that we can relate to God the way we relate to the people around us. If you're good to me, I'll be good to you. Um, If you treat me well, I'll treat you well. And when it comes to God, it's just about being a nice person. You know, you care for your family, you work hard, you don't break the laws, you, 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 you get involved in the community around you, and that makes God happy. If we do all these types of things, we don't really have that much to be forgiven. But I think there are two clues in this psalm that tells us about our profound need for 
forgiveness. That deep down, we actually really do need, and we do know we need forgiveness. First, uh, let's look again what David says. He says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. He talks about how our sins need to be covered. I think what he's doing is referring back to the garden. You know, to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, where we're told they were naked and felt no shame. This is before sin entered into the world. They had a perfect relationship with God, a perfect relationship with one another. Nothing to hide. But then we're told that sin entered into the world. They ate from the tree that God told them not to eat from. And what happened? Genesis 3 verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They covered up. Uh, sin enters into the world. It enters into their lives and they realize they have something to hide. They cover up. They're now into marketing. No transparency. Uh, they, they, they can't be honest with one another. And we've been doing this... Ever since, trying to hide our faults, our failures, trying to control what other people see of us. And that's the Bible's diagnosis of our condition. It tells us that we're always covering up because we, 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 we somehow feel that we can't be naked and unashamed. We have this suspicion that we can't be both deeply known and deeply loved at the same time. And so we do all sorts of things to control what people know about us. Um, we manipulate our looks. Uh, we want to be taller, shorter, fatter, thinner, um, better looking than otherwise we would be. Uh, when you speak to people, you, you, we always tr tend to steer the conversation towards those things we actually think we know something about. We don't want people to know that we're stupid or incompetent. So we steer uh, the conversations to a particular direction. Um, what's, one of the, what's, what's a reason why we're uncomfortable about doing new things? We don't feel comfortable about doing new things because we don't want to look incompetent. And so in, in many parts of our lives, we want to be able to see and not be seen. Uh, we want to be able to judge and not be judged by others. Why is it that we work so hard? I mean, we say to ourselves, okay, in our, in our work or our career, if I get to that particular level, I'll stop working hard. But when you get to that particular level, you just keep working just as hard. Why? Because you don't want to let anybody down. You don't want people to think less of you. You don't want to disappoint. We're, we're always covering up. And it's not just from each other. We're also covering up in front of God. And very often what we use as fig leaves is religion, morality, good works, rules. All the time we're trying to convince God, look God, I'm respectable, I'm going all right, things are fine. On, and on the outside, you can look great, you can look quite schmick. But when it comes to God, there's this nagging sense of inadequacy. Uh, you're always trying to prove yourself. Um, you feel a sense of inadequacy. But this time it has to do with our relationship with God. And so we're always, we're always covering up. We always feel as though we have something to hide. The second clue that David gives us about our profound need for forgiveness is there from verse 3. David says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. 
My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. What would make David feel like this? A lot of the commentators say that this psalm is linked to David's adultery with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband Uriah. Uh, This happens in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Um, It's thought that Psalm 51 was David's immediate response of confession once the prophet Nathan exposed to him his sin, whereas this psalm, Psalm 32, is a more considered reflection done quite a while afterwards. Here is David thinking again about that experience. It's in the aftermath of his adultery and murder of Uriah. Almost a year after Nathan confronted him, nothing had happened. It was like things had gone away. Um, But he, he kept silence. He didn't tell anyone. He didn't tell anyone until Nathan confronted him. He couldn't escape the guilt, though, even though he kept silent. It plagued him. David describes it like psychological and physical symptoms. Uh, Physically, it felt like his guilt was gnawing away at him, uh, depriving him of health. He says, my bones wasted away. It left him exhausted. He said, my strength was sapped in the heat of summer. And even though he kept silence about his sin, he kept thinking about it all the time. It was like his conscience was continually bringing before the forefront of his mind what he had done. What he had done all the time, he could get no respite. It became like an ongoing obsession for him. Worst of all was this sense of alienation from God. He says, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. And so he couldn't forget. He couldn't escape. Uh, The guilt wouldn't leave him alone. There's a service in the US called the Apology Line. Uh, It gives people the opportunity, the chance to do just that, to apologise. They phone this line they ring in and they apologize for something that they've done they do it anonymously they can do it either to a person on the other end of the line or they can do it to an answering service one man called in saying i want to apologize to my ex-fiancee for always leaving the house whenever we had an argument and for never wanting to resolve the argument on anything other than my terms another lady phoned in a lady who'd caused a car accident that led to the death of five people. And she said, I just want to call to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I wish I could take everything back. Now, this line apparently gets 100 calls a day in, the, in New York and 200 calls a day in L.A. And it's not surprising that this phone service is so popular because guilt can have this nagging presence in our lives. Uh, there is something you've done... You cannot take it back. You could do, you'd want to do almost everything to anything to, to have that moment over again so that the damage that you had inflicted could somehow be reversed, be taken back. You could make amends. But you can't, right? It's done. And yet, telling someone helps. Admitting the guilt helps. Owning the problem. But Well, simply calling a phone line make the problem, make the guilt go away. When you're carrying guilt, when you know you've done something wrong, wouldn't it be great to have it dealt with? To not have to carry the burden of it all the time. To be able to say with David, blessed is the person whose sins are covered over. Blessed is the one whom God has forgiven. Wouldn't that bring you incredible peace? No longer having to cover up, no longer having to cover the guilts. 
So let's look what David did, because apart from the priority of confession, he also shows us something of the path of confession. I think this psalm tells us four things that are necessary in us to find that peace, that blessed life that David is talking about. First of all, there must be simple honesty. Uh, David tells us of the anguish that he went through when he kept silent, right? But then this sudden shift happens in the psalm in verse 5. He says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. He acknowledged what he did. In other words, he didn't cover up anymore. Now look, what do you do when you do something wrong? How do you deal with it? Well, you have loads of options. First, you can shift blame. It's not my fault. It's my boss or my, my, my wife, my circumstances. It's, it's not my fault. You can, you can shift blame. Or you can define it away. Well, what I did wasn't really wrong. That's just your opinion. You can define it away. Or you can numb yourself. Uh, so we medicate ourselves. You can get drunk or you can go shopping. Anything that takes away the pain. You can bring other people down. You feel bad about what you've done, and so you criticise, you gossip, you tear other people down so that you're not as far down in comparison to them. You can be a little bit lifted up high. So, so you bring other people down. You, you think what I've done is bad? Well, let me talk to you about her. What she did was far worse. You can compensate. You can compensate. You know you've done something bad, so you try to do something extraordinarily good in order to right the wrong. Um, you turn over a new leaf, you, 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 you go for the path of self-improvement, or you can be extraordinarily generous, right? You sign big checks to make amends for the wrong that you have somehow done. There are lots of options. And I know, you know, most of us have probably taken some of these at some stage. But look at what David says. He says, Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. You could, you know, when you've done something wrong, you could go the path of self-improvement. You could turn over a new leaf. A lot of us even conceal. We deny what we have done. But if you do that, you're adding to one sin another, the sin of concealment, the sin of deceit. And how can we hide anything from the God who knows everything, who sees everything? If we do that, otherwise we're, we're, we're simply doing what David did before. We're keeping silent. We're denying that there was ever a problem. But David knew the difference. Blessed is the one in whose spirit is no deceit. So that's the first step along the path. Um, honesty. But honesty alone is not repentance. What we need to have as well is a sense of sorrow. Sorrow for sin, not simply sorrow for the consequences of our actions. There is a difference. Look again at verse 5. David said, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. What did he confess? He confessed his sin. He confessed his transgressions. That's what he was sorrowful for. You know, very often when we do something wrong and we admit it, we express remorse. But remorse is different to repentance. Let me explain. Remorse is looking at all the mess that you've caused. 
looking at the collateral damage and thinking, I'm an idiot. What was I thinking? How could I be so stupid? Look at, the, look at how I've ruined things. Look at how I've hurt that person. Now, it's like David saying, look at what sort of a king I am. I'm incompetent. I, I, I sleep with that, that lady. I, 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 my, my, my trusted soldier and friend, it's his wife, and then I arrange his, his murder. What happens if people find out? My reputation will be in tatters. Uh, what sort of a king am I? Now, don't get me wrong, remorse is important because remorse shows that you're recognising that you've caused some damage. But it's not enough because remorse is mainly looking at the mess around you, but it stops there. Repentance goes further because in repentance you're recognising that first and foremost your offence is against God. You see, if we're sorrowful simply because of the the consequences of our mistakes, that's not going to change us too much. Because once we can do that again, do that sin again, and those consequences won't be there, we'll be freed up to do it again, right? I think that's what David's saying when he says in verse 9, Do not be like the horse or mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by the bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Earlier this month, at the beginning of this month, I took a, a whole bunch of people from St Andrews to, on a tour to Israel and Jordan. And uh, when we were in Jordan, particularly in Petra, um, there were loads of camels and horses and mules. I took selfies with lots of different animals. And uh, apparently mules are, actually, there is some intelligence with mules. Um, and as I observed a lot of the mules that were being used, particularly in Petra, when uh, a person would ride on them, particularly the locals, they would be quite rough with them. They would kick them a lot in the side or or whack them with a metal rod. And the the mule would move along, it'd be going along this path, and it'd start going to the left. It wanted to go to the left, and its rider would whack it, and it changed to the right. But after a while, the, 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 the mule would notice that there's still something on the left that really interests it. And so it'd start going left again, and what would happen? The rider would whack it. And it'd have to go right, ouch, right. And the process would repeat and repeat. Left, whack, ouch, right. And this would go on and on and on. And finally the mule thinks to himself, okay, I'm not going to go that way anymore. I'm not going to go left anymore. Why? Because he's sorry for the pain. He's sorry for the consequences of his sin. He doesn't really understand the mind of his master, but for the time being he's going to do what his master wants because he understands the consequences. He changes because of the pain. He changes for his own sake, not for his master's. But what happens when the memory fades? He's going to make the same mistake again. Now, deep change only comes when we change because of our love for God. When we change because of his will, not ours. The third thing that we see in this psalm is that David hears God telling him to live the obedient life. Having come to God for forgiveness, David hears God's reply in verses 8 to 10. God saying, I'll instruct you and teach you in the ways you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. David, David is hearing God say to him, don't be like the mule uh, that can't be instructed, doesn't understand its master. Repentance is not simply sorrow for sin, it's the changed life. And in these verses, God is giving David 
personal guidance, how to live that life. I will teach you, I will instruct you, I will counsel you. This is the sort of image of a, of a mother teaching her child how to walk, or never taking her eyes off this child. God is just as tender and loving and merciful to his own people. Look, very often a good indication that you are growing spiritually is that your behaviour is changing. You, look, you can look on the past six months or year or five years and recognise in your own life that you are not struggling as much with those mistakes, those besetting sins, those character flaws that you used to struggle with, that you're making some progress there. But if, it, if there isn't that much change, if you're still dealing with the same issues, making the same mistakes, there's still those same besetting sins in your life, then chances are you're stagnant in your Christian growth and your heart hasn't been changed. Sin hasn't lost its attractive power over you. Fourth thing that we need to know about the pathway to repentance and confession is the basis of our forgiveness. The basis of our forgiveness. David has this wonderful assurance that upon confessing his sins, he finds forgiveness. Notice that David doesn't say, if I straighten up and fly right, God will forgive me. Nor does he say, if I confess my sins, then maybe God will forgive me. No, no, no. He has this wonderful assurance in verse 5. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There's nothing else, no other conditions, no other prerequisites. Now, how does God forgive like that? I think we get a clue from the very beginning of the psalm again. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. God no longer counts our sin against us. It's the language of accounting. Of, uh, it's a legal language. It's like our sin is no longer accounted against us anymore. Martin Luther, Martin Luther, who we're remembering in a couple of days, who, who nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the cathedral, Martin Luther 500 years ago, who started... The, 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 the epicentre of the German Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. He said Psalm 32 is Paul's psalm because the Apostle Paul used this psalm in his argument in the book of Romans. He uses uh, verses 1 and 2 in Romans 4 and he says that David is speaking about the blessing of being justified by faith. Justification is a verdict. It's a state of being right with God, not having your sin counted against you. It's nothing that we can achieve ourselves, no matter how hard we try. And Paul says that God doesn't count the sin of a repentant believer against them anymore. A repentant sinner is justified because our sin is no longer counted against us. How is that possible? Well, it's because Christ stood in our place. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Christ becomes a sinner for our sakes so that we can become righteous. We can be counted as righteous for his sake. He is treated as our record deserves. We are given his record. We are treated as he deserves. Now, imagine yourself before the judgment throne of God, that great and scary day when each of us will be asked to give an account of how we've lived our lives. 
And imagine just before God's throne, an angel opens this thick and heavy book. And it takes him a while. He starts to read it. And he reads it. And he reads it. And it takes an extraordinarily long time. And as the hours, the days go past and he's reading this thing, you begin to feel more and more helpless. Because this is a book of of a record of all the sins that you've done. All those things that you'd, you'd hope would be forgotten about. Those things that you thought were secret that no one else knew. Those things that you forgot about yourself. All the ways, small and large, in which you've pushed God away to the margins of your life and you've chased after other things. And God asks this angel, whose name is on the front of this book? And the angel replies, Jesus of Nazareth. Then the angel takes a second book and begins to read from it. This life in this book is completely different. It's a life full of compassion and love and truth. Not one single sin is mentioned. It is perfect. Once more, God asks, whose name is on the front of this book? And it's your name. You know, once you put your trust in God, this glorious exchange happens. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, his life is for yours. His righteousness is given to you. Your sin is given to him. You know, friends, we can spend our whole lives covering up, marketing, picking on a facade. Or you can follow David's path. And you can have even more abundant joy than he did because we're on this side of the cross. We know the extent to which God went to to have our sins forgiven. We know the extent of God's love for us. You know, I said before how I have three sons at home. You could say I have, th- I have sons to spare, right? But if it came to an accident and I had to make this desperate choice between saving all of you and saving my boys, as much as you're nice, you, it wouldn't end well for you, right? But God did not spare his one and only son, his one and only begotten son for you. How can we not confess everything? Christian joy, Christian repentance, I should say, is joyful repentance because we know the extent of God's love for us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. For the joy set before him, Christ went to the cross, enduring its shame. What was that joy? What was the thing that Jesus didn't have before he came to earth? Amidst all the splendour of his heavenly glory, he didn't have you and I. So it's with joy we can come towards God and confess our guilt and shame and find the deep well of forgiveness in our Lord Jesus Christ. We can say like David, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Are you a confessing person? Then come before God's throne of grace again and again and again. I'm going to stop. I'm going to give you a chance just to quietly reflect on some of the things that we've been talking about here. Maybe some things that have been on your heart that you know you need to confess before God, some changes in your life, and then I'm going to pray in a few moments. Loving God and Heavenly Father, we confess that we have wandering hearts. We are prone to chase after the good things in this world that you have given us. 
rather than seeking you with our whole heart. And we confess that we often deny our sin, we justify it, we blame others, we refuse to take responsibility, even though we see the the damage that we often cause, um, we fail to come to you in confession. So convict us by your spirit, because without you we're unable even to make any step towards you. Convict us by your spirit and help us to use this resource of confession that you've given us to come before you over and over and over again, come before you with our sins and faults, but also come before the cross knowing that that's where your love and mercy meet, that we can find forgiveness in Jesus because he stands in our place. Lord, help us in turn to joyfully respond to the great things that Christ has done for us in obedient and transformed lives. Guide us, Lord, to be the people that you want us to be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.